0: I'm only willing to take these risks being arrested, risk all of going to court and the prosecutions that follow. I'm only willing to do that because I'm convinced that the situation is that urgent.
1: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast. The show where we sometimes have to say, don't make me stop what I'm doing and come down there. (laughs) But sadly, as we continue to watch our governments do the bare minimum not to get fired over mitigating climate change, we begin to ask ourselves, what's it going to take to actually get some movement here? Now, if you've read the book Ministry of the Future by Ken Stanley Robinson, you will recall that that book opens with the deaths of 20 million Indian citizens. And this is all because of an an intense heat wave that brings about these wet bulb temperatures for a full week. And this is the massacre that finally changes the course of history in the book. Now, obviously, we don't want 20 million people to die for us to finally get off our butts and do something about this. And if you listen to Neil Dykeman in episode 14 and 16 of season three, He tells us that we have the technology, we have the markets, we know what to do, we just lack the political will. That's why our guest today is actively working to encourage more scientists and average people to become climate activists and put on the pressure. But first, the requisite podcast details. I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the CEO of the award-winning Technica Communications and the founder of Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. This podcast is brought to you by a dedicated team of professionals who are eager to use their media skills to work for climate action. And assuming you appreciate that, we ask that you please take a moment, go to your podcast app for the show, scroll down, and leave us a few stars. You don't need to leave us any words, just a few stars is fine. And uh, that's going to help us encourage other people to find the show. You may also become a Patreon member should you choose. And we will give the first 20 new members uh, this year an Earthlings t-shirt. Yes, we have swag, people, and we are not afraid to use it. So please stay tuned in for the future rollout of this swag. Uh, but if you become a Patreon member, you can get one immediately. And now... A moment from the Resource Labs Network.
0: Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.
1: Research indicates that nonviolent protests are twice as likely to succeed as armed conflicts and those engaging a threshold of 3.5% of the population have never failed to bring about change. This is information from political scientist Erica Chenoweth at Harvard University, and she points out that civil disobedience is not only the moral choice, it is also the most powerful way to shape world politics. She did some extensive review of literature on civil resistance and social movements from 1900 to 2006 And whether it was regime change or a social movement, they all have this 3.5% number in common. So with this target in mind, I put on my data hat and I crunched some numbers. I found the climate protest tracker, which details these activities around the world. And I did geek out a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I went and found the global climate strike of September 2023, which was the largest demonstration collectively to date. Uh, and 1 million people showed up for climate action in 50 countries. So hypothetically, if all 1 million of those people were U.S. citizens, such a march would only equal 0.3% of the population. So you would need 11 million people expressing their desire for climate action a secure successful change in that country with Chenoweth 3.5% target. That's a lot of people, people. Now, we know that today's climate activism has yet to reach that threshold. So those of us at Earthlings 2.0 wanted to understand what are the lessons that we can take from movements from the past that were successful and help bring more people into climate action. So we found a climate scientist who better than anyone understands the struggle and the importance of taking science to the streets. His name is Dr. Aaron Theory, and he's a climate scientist turned activism researcher. After spending years as an ecologist and an environmental activist in the Arctic for the climate crisis, He now researches communication strategies of activist organizations. At Cardiff University's School of Social Sciences, he is examining the interplay between reason and emotion in the climate emergency movement.
0: We use science to try and help us understand what the impacts of climate change are going to be. So science has been a key tool in our understanding and building our understanding of what climate change is and what to do about it. Um, what that means is that scientists have a certain authority to speak on these issues, I think, and, and you know, the science is incredibly settled on this. There's been a consensus on these issues for decades now. Uh, it's one of the most researched, most thoroughly agreed upon areas of science that, that exist. Um, and so I think considering that that's now the case and considering that it's been, uh, you know, that governments are continuing to carry on, you know, missing targets again and again and again, I think therefore it's, it's becomes necessary for scientists to start saying, well, you know, I'm a human being too. <laughs> I live in the world. I have <laughs> things that I care about. I'm not just a scientist sitting in a lab, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm deeply concerned about my future. I'm really, freaking out about where this is going and the fact that governments are betraying us and in the fact that they're not taking the actions that they said they would. Um, so that then, I think, feels like, you know, just for our own sakes, for our own survival, we have to get out and try to challenge this. And so um, I think that's that's why I see, see more and more scientists coming to this conclusion that just doing our research and publishing it is no longer enough. We have to try and do more than that um, because of this. The stakes that are so high, what that looks like, I think, is an individual decision. But for me, it's led me to start taking part in these acts of civil disobedience with groups like Citizens for Extinction Rebellion, like you say, um, yeah, because I think the situation's that dire, right? And I think we we just have to to really try everything at our disposal at this point. And and one of the things that I think these acts of civil disobedience can do is that they they show um, you know our level of concern. I think it's an act of communication you know i'm only willing to take take these risks these you know to, you know risk being arrested risk all of what going to court and and the, the the prosecutions that that follow or i'm only willing to do that because i'm convinced that the situation is that urgent and i and i've come to that conclusion because of my scientific studies so that's why for me the two things go hand in hand
1: what are, what are some examples of some of the most effective uh, climate activism moments have been from your perspective, especially involving scientists?
0: It's always hard to isolate these things to a single moment because campaigns build over time. Right. And often there, there are many different things feeding into them to lead to successes. It's almost always taken, uh, you know, uh, pe- people pr- protesting, demonstrating, uh, lobbying, organizing in their communities, all of those things, legal challenges and all of that. But the ones that have been most successful are the ones that also then have a level of direct action or civil disobedience as part of those movements. And that might include, for example, blockading um, uh, the, the the fossil fuel infrastructure site before anything can be built. So there have been examples um, of, um, where for you know, leading climate scientists have been involved in those movements, so a famous one is James Hansen, who was one of the first scientists in the US, uh, famous NASA scientist who warned the US Congress of climate change back in the 1980s. Um, he, in, in uh, the 2010s, was arrested several times as part of protests against the, the XL Keystone Pipeline. And at the end of all of those protests, that pipeline was blocked and didn't go ahead. The, I'm not saying it was just that that did it, but it was in combination with everything else. And I think that was a really key part of it because seeing someone like James Hansen getting arrested made national news, drew attention, massive attention to that issue and, and really heightened the, the kind of the moral dilemma for Obama and, and subsequent, uh, you know, um, administrations. So I've been recently involved in a campaign against a coal mine that is here in South Wales. Um, South Wales is famous for where the industrial revolution began. It also uh, still has some coal mines that are active in the area, um, and we've been blockading that mine. It's a mine. Uh, you know, technically it shouldn't be going ahead now. Uh, you know, it's, it's in breach of its legal, um, uh, um, paper, like the, the the licenses have expired, but it's still carrying on. That looks like that's now been successful. So. That's a way in which actually resorting to these rather extreme tactics has been necessary because all of the other avenues for change have been uh, ineffective, and I think that's a really key thing around these issues. Actually, I didn't touch on it before, but I think you know, in order for civil disobedience to be seen as as, as um, ethically justified, I think you've got to have tried other things first. You, you don't just reach for that straight away. You show that the system's failing to respond and at the end of that what you have left that that's the only avenue that that's still available we're not trying to pull down the system right <laughs> what we're trying to do is we're trying to um uh point out that the system's failing us and and so yes we break the law but we are not trying to be unlawful we're not trying to bring about chaos
1: i appreciate that you share that because it's uh, i think people think that um the civil disobedience just happens out of the blue People just decide one day that they're going to go block, you know, a facility. And um, and then there's there's a lot that's been built up to get to that point. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about everything that goes into um, this activism work? And what are the different types of roles that people tend to have?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. There's this huge different number of roles Um these groups, uh, I think, of them a bit like an iceberg. So, you'd like you've got the ten percent above the water and like ninety percent below the water. And as you were just alluding to, it's pretty much only the the people who are actually taking part in the actions themselves that that kind of get featured in the media. But underneath that, there's a huge support structure of people, um, you know, doing things like fundraising, doing things like awareness raising, recruiting, uh, training. Um, you've got all the people hosting and organizing meetings that take place. You've got people, and that can involve things like baking baking uh, cookies to go around and share with everybody, right? Like we still got to feed the revolution, but like <laughs> you know, th- there's all of these things, and that actually, I mean, that's a really important point because when we do our big demos, um, where we in in London, for example, we've occupied uh, Parliament Square for you know several several weeks at a time, people camping out in the streets the whole time, trying to build this kind of pressure to put on the government to take much stronger action um you know there's street kitchens there right the camp kitchens that, that have to be maintained there's people who are um do all the prep or, or or provisioning for all of that so it takes a lot of work there's loads of different jobs that people have to do um and like whereas there's a lot of care work that has to go around it as well so um putting ourselves into these vulnerable positions uh often that that takes a lot of them um uh a a big emotional toll uh, being in those environments. Uh, Likewise, there's the legal cases that then follow on from that. And so there's a lot of uh, uncertainty around those trials and and what happens if you're found guilty. So then there's people who help fundraise sometimes to help with the legal efforts and so on. There's there's lawyers who give their time uh, pro bono to help with these cases too quite often. Um, There's scientists who who are writing um, uh, evidence statements that are then read in court. So Many people support the movement and are actively contributing to the movement from their homes without ever having to be on the streets. But it's, it's the point is is that without all of that, these movements wouldn't succeed. And uh, so there's there's room for everybody, and I think that's that's the main thing.
1: So you don't have to jump uh, right up to the you know the front line of the demonstration on your first day as a climate activist, right? You can start out something simple, something behind the scenes. And it sounds to me like we need many, many more people behind the scenes than we do in front.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, people uh, step into different roles at different times as well, right? And and again, people are trained in order to be able to take part in, uh, in these acts of civil disobedience. There's a lot of training that goes into how to remain calm, how to beat to not react violently if if the police come in and heavy-handed or anything like that. So it's a lot of emphasis is put on you know maintaining this demeanor of non-violence, um, and that's that's um, been true throughout Extinction Rebellion's existence that I've seen. You know we've had these like I say massive demos that have, have um, you know led to thousands of people being arrested. There wasn't any cases where people were uh, uh, um, accused of violence in those situations. Right? We we the training is is very important to that.
1: Okay. And the work you do uh, around your research at Cardiff University um, is centers around climate activism. What have been some of the, and, and related specifically around scientists participating in this work? So what are some of the recent findings that, that you've um, uh, come up with and how, are, how is some of that being implemented?
0: I'm interested in two aspects of it. So one is around science communication and the way that social movements use science in their communications. The, the other thing that I'm interested in is, you know, like, as I say, the, the ways in which scientists feel about whether or not to join in and support these movements. And if so, what ways do scientists feel most comfortable taking on in order to do so? Um, and so there are, I think, good faith arguments that are happening within the scientific community about how far to go and how many scientists should in- engage in these types of activity. And I think a lot of that boils down to concerns around public trust. Uh, some scientists feel that if they become too associated with political movements or political activism, that their work will become uh, questioned by public who don't uh, agree with those movements or don't identify with those movements. And that could have an, a deleterious effect on uh, public understanding of sites and therefore, you know, potentially the, the need for action on these issues.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because like, I grew up in a scientific household and it was all about reputation and neutrality and, and, and main maintaining um, that those um, virtues uh, when, when one was doing their research uh, or presenting or what have you. So how, how can we balance these two things? Cause we do want science to be neutral and, you know, about the data and the facts. Uh, but at the same time, we want to, Use that data to move people emotionally to take action.
0: Yeah, and I think you kind of named it just then yourself actually part of the answer, which is that it's the pro- it's often it's the procedure that scientists follow when doing their work that leads to the trust in the, uh, and the validity of their work. It's the the, the rules that we follow, the the methods, the, the the way in which we publish our work transparently, and so on. I think that's still always going to be the case. It doesn't necessarily follow either that we can be neutral with respect to what we find out. So. If we don't speak out enough, the status quo will carry on. More people will be harmed, and so on. So, in a sense, for me, there's no uh, such thing as an apolitical or neutral stance with this information. Once you have it, you have to make a judgment as to how you're going to act about on it. It's a, it's a dilemma that's, uh, that that um, you know uh, Einstein apparently said when he uh, found that uh, you know um, uh, was asked about his role in developing the nuclear uh, weapons and he said you know with with great knowledge comes a responsibility in a sense and he and many other nuclear physicists found themselves in that position and famously some of them including uh you know uh, Carl Sagan the famous popularizer of science they were arrested tried to stop uh, uh nuclear weapons testing mm-hmm.
1: 100% and and what about academic institutions i was reading one of the papers that you you sent me um and spoke about how the traditional uh structure of academics uh, institutions didn't isn't quite up to the challenge of of what the opportunity is here um, uh, for the climate crisis. So so what changes would you like to see in academic institutions to bring more people into climate activism?
0: This really ca- kind of cuts to the heart of it. I think for me as well is is um, what what is it that we're producing all this knowledge for. Um, And and I think, you know, a lot of the time the the purpose of producing this knowledge, especially at public institutions like universities, is for the public good. Now, what we're finding is that this research that we're producing is not translating into those changes. We're still headed to this disaster, even though scientists have been working on this for decades. So what would that look like then at a university? We need to be able to, like I said, support these movements when they're out on the streets doing their thing. So some scientists, at least some researchers, some students, will need to be part of these movements and therefore they need to be protected by their institutions when they take part in those activities. So I would say things like protecting the rights of staff to take part in these activities, such as civil disobedience if necessary, without the risk of them then being fired from their jobs. In order to say, I'm really worried about this, I don't think we're doing enough about that. It, it, it makes people uncomfortable because it reminds them that our society is failing to address this issue. And so instead of being able to make spaces to talk about these things, we end up uh, basically um, avoiding it. <laughs> and and, and that me- that's what creates this taboo. Um, and particularly when, for example, universities are tied into systems where they get funding from, say, fossil fuel companies as part of their research budgets, especially when those graduates are currently going off to work for those companies or, uh, you know, you know, law students graduating to go and work for a, a, a legal company that then works for
1: ExxonMobil. And it makes sense, too, because I think, you know, universities are, are natural places for some of these movements to build steam beyond... The, the academics and, and the and the research, frankly, you have a large body of people with some time and a little bit of flexibility to go out and demonstrate or, or to put some effort um, in behind the scenes versus folks um, with full time jobs and families and all of these other um, uh, responsibilities that you know it takes a little bit of time to sort of whittle away at those objections before those types of people generally will get out and demonstrate or participate
0: yeah absolutely i think that's exactly right
1: i like the idea of working to to get some of these academic institutions to be to be more forward in in the activism or just or just opening opening the experience for people to be more active in whatever topic that they want to be active on. Yeah, exactly. Um, you spoke a little bit about different uh, uh, geographical locations uh, that have been active. Where are you seeing the most um, activity around climate protests? Is it in Europe more than the US or, or is that maybe just a perception of media?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a good question. It depends on what kind of activities and what kind of protests we're classifying as climate action. And I think um, one thing that I would hope, for, going back to what you were saying before, is that actually um, we can redefine what climate action looks like, uh, so that it is, for example, um, you know, deploying renewable energy in your area and, and creating new green jobs or it is re-insulating homes to stop fuel poverty, and that is also climate action. But I think also um, explicitly as climate change activism uh, around that, then I would say, yes, it's probably more so in uh, the Global North countries, Um, but... that's also partly because of you know the legal environments that these things are happening in whereas in the global south what you tend to find is uh that the activities are around um if i've understood it right more particular points of extraction and projects going ahead that that will then create environmental harm and pollution in the local area which creates social injustice in that area so uh other things are are as well around for example uh coal, coal mining or oil drilling or cattle ranching and how that's expanding to cause uh, deforestation and and then communities are opposing those things as well. So what we find is that you know environmental defenders around the world in those areas are often uh, putting their lives on the line when they're doing that, and um, you know hundreds of people a year are, are killed opposing these projects on the ground. And and I think you know these these environmental defenders often don't get into the news, even though they're they're making these huge sacrifices. And I think that's a problem that our media really needs to think about where it's putting its gaze uh, on, on these issues.
1: I appreciate that you said all that because it's true that, you know, you can have a, an effect globally on the climate crisis by addressing what's happening locally where you are because it all it's all a piece of the whole in terms of what we're, we're um, putting out into the atmosphere. And how do you recommend people uh, get involved if they want to start being active? active on climate? Are there any specific groups that you recommend that they look into? Or any, any websites that are a good place to get started?
0: There's lo- loads of different groups out there and there's local groups and there's national groups and there's global groups so like, you know, uh, have a look around is, is probably my, my uh, suggestion. Think about the issues that are important to you, the bits that you want to work on and so some of the really interesting groups that I've, I think are, are happening right now There's the Fossil Fuel Non-Periferation Treaty, which is a a group that's trying to bring about a global ban on on new fossil fuel developments. That's the ultimate goal. But the way that they're doing it is organising at lots of different levels. And so, you know, they're trying to get uh, city councils to pass motions saying that they support that vision. They want to see that passed, which then gets passed up to like state legislatures, which then have to vote on it. And then they get passed. And then it's hopefully pushing up to a national legislatures, right? And we're already starting to see that some countries are saying, yes, we're going to sign up to this. So that's that's one example. Another one that I think is really exciting uh, is uh, the campaign to stop ecocide, which is doing something similar. And what they're saying is, again, we need an international treaty that's going to allow us to hold people uh, criminally accountable for causing massive environmental harm. Uh, in the same way as we have laws against genocide, there should be laws against ecocide because it still creates huge humanitarian harm and, and uh, harms human rights. And so the third one, which I find again, really inspiring um, is in the UK, we've got, um, the government's just recently announced that it's going to continue expanding fossil fuel exploration into the North Sea. Clearly this goes against all our climate targets, right, the, the international um, um, uh, the Paris Agreement goals. And so there's this group in the UK called Just Stop Oil that have been active Um, Basically, every day going out, trying to block roads uh, in order to create this uh, uh, attention to this issue, trying to show, you know, that there's this popular opposition to the government for continuing with this policy. And because it's going on day after day after day, it keeps forcing this issue. And although the group themselves are now, you know, demonized in the press and, you know, if you ask people generally, they'd say that they didn't like the group. The issue around um, the, the need to stop this North Sea oil and gas development has shot up the political agenda and is now a, a really key uh, thing that's being discussed with the opposition party in the UK, the Labour Party, saying that were they in government, they wouldn't uh, uh, continue with that policy. So um, we're starting to see that's a way in which like this, this kind of small-scale civil disobedience groups can be really effective at, at trying to change a national conversation.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because something that's been um I've been watching over the years is uh some activists getting more um going after civil disobedience in in very populist ways. So it's not connected to blocking an uh an, an oil facility or private jets and airports, but they're going and defacing public works of art or works of our famous works of art. Like there was a Van Gogh that was, that was um, um, defaced. And I think my, sometimes I have a concern that people are just going to write off climate activists writ large, because there's the small group of people who are getting a tremendous amount of media exposure for civil disobedience that seems unrelated to the uh, the mission that they're attempting to achieve.
0: So, yeah, it's a really interesting point. And, and I think these things are constantly being discussed within the, the movements themselves, right? Different groups take different positions. They have different tactics. They they often disagree amongst themselves about what's the best way to go forwards. Um, but there is a lot of research that's kind of going into this at the moment by social scientists trying to figure out, okay, what tactics do work? And strategically, when are they useful? and um, one of the things that, that they kind of have found is what they're calling this kind of radical flank effect where having a few people involved in those kind of actions, even if they are unpopular, and even if um, you know they don't for most people make much sense, if it's done in a way that does get a lot of media attention, that does um, um, make people aware of this issue, what you tend to find is that people will start supporting more moderate voices more, so they'll start saying, you know, we don't like what they're doing, but people who are, you know, lobbying about this issue in a ways that we're more comfortable with, we support them more. And so it has this effect of shifting what's seen as legitimate debate in societies. And so although the groups are unpopular themselves for taking these actions, um, what happens is that society, the, the scope for action in society becomes more possible. and And I think that's sometimes we have to look at these things in not a direct cause and effect kind of way, but there's these kind of more complicated dynamics that play out in complex societies. And I think, uh, expecting things to always be nice and linear is, is something that we just have to let go of when we're trying to think about processes of social change.
1: What you mean? Everything's not a straight line, Aaron? <laughs> 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 I feel so disillusioned now. Um, uh, when we look at the next five years of the climate movement, what's your prediction? Uh, what, what can we see in activism in the near future based on what you know and everything that's happening?
0: We're going to start seeing more and more crises happening, more and more disasters. And therefore, I think one of the consequences of that will be that people concerned about these issues will become more and more active. Now, what that looks like, I think, will depend on where you are in the world and and, and what kind of um, response there is from governments and so on. But I think one thing that I'm seeing happening in in the UK and, and also we see it in other countries at the moment, so we're seeing it in the US, in Australia, Canada, Germany, we're, we're seeing a clampdown on, on protest rights. Uh, so, you know, the governments who want to carry on with business as usual are basically bringing in more and more draconian rules that are allowing harsher penalties for people involved in these kind of protests. We know in the UK's case that some of these laws and rules are being actually encouraged and written by uh, fossil fuel companies through think tanks that are funded you know through dark, dark money channels and things like that and that's now investigative journalists have shown shown how that's working. So so I think that's partly because it's working right like I think that's the thing is like it's effective so they're trying to shut it down and I think we're going to see more of those efforts to do that, which I then would hope means that people concerned about civil liberties uh, uh, would, would start fighting back and pushing back against those those issues. But one of the things that that has the effect of doing is raising the stakes for these kind of protests. It might mean that activists increasingly go underground in order to try and do these actions without taking the same levels of risk. That's That's one possibility. Another is that they reduce the level of the kind of actions that they're doing in order to Try and maintain a similar level of risk for themselves because you know they go to such lengths to try and criminalise protests of young people who are simply standing up trying to say we deserve a future and we're going to carry on raising our voices for it that it becomes more and more absurd the fact that you can't even just walk down the street holding a sign anymore that's that's illegal right so that's another thing that can happen and I think the third thing is I think we're going to see that these movements are going to broaden and, and become more unified with other causes too. So one of the things that, you know, is clear is that on its own, just the climate and environmental movement cannot cannot win. Like the, the changes are too big that it's going to affect all parts of society. And it's not going to just be the case that, that people campaigning who care deeply about these issues are going to. There's not enough of us as it is to to bring about those changes quickly enough. So I think looking at how these movements join together with other groups, um, you know, uh, campaigning for racial justice, campaigning for. Um, you know, uh, jobs and and, and social security. Those are all going to be seen more and more as part of the same fight, I think. And I think that then means that you'll start seeing larger and larger groups potentially. But that's going to take work because in order to get to that point, we've got to be able to have more and more conversations between these different groups.
1: Well there you have it, Earthlings. There is so much more to climate activism than holding a sign in the street. You can bake cookies, you can do fundraisers, you can show up at city hall meetings, you can be out there in the world, or you can be behind the scenes, and all of it is going to have an impact. This does mean that you have a little homework to do. Because listening to this podcast, Is not enough, although we deeply appreciate you being a listener. You know that. To get involved more directly on climate, you're going to have to make a task on your to do list because we all know if you don't make a task, it doesn't get done. And do a little research of groups that are active in your area. Uh, We put a few links in the show notes for you to help get you started. Um, There's the Climate Action Network, and we put up the global members list so you can search across the world of Climate Action Network members. Also, there's the top 50 climate nonprofits to watch in 2023. And I like that list because it kind of breaks down these groups by category. There's climate education, there's carbon pricing, marine conservation, faith-based groups, uh, sustainable commerce, just to name a few. And like Erin said, we get to give ourselves room to shop around with these groups. Go on a few dates, right? meet some people, figure out if you are resonating with what they're about and see if there's a match there. And if there's not, don't feel bad about it. Move on to the next group. Uh, Because no matter what it is, big and small, we're all going to need everyone in this fight if we're going to have a livable planet in the future. Speaking of showing up, today's Restoring Faith in Humanity segment comes to us from Sulphur, Louisiana or better known um, as Cancer Alley. I'm not making this up, it's crazy. Kima Ozane is an 11 year old activist and along with her mother, they're raising awareness of the harmful effects of living near fossil fuel plants. You see, Kamina was diagnosed with skin cancer caused by the petrochemical facilities around their home uh, because it's poisoning the environment where she lives. Um, and so uh, kids like her break out in skin rashes and they develop these other illnesses. Sometimes it becomes a skin cancer. It's terrible. And uh, Kimina told the Guardian in an email, Every time I struggle to catch my breath, I am reminded of the urgent need to march against fossil fuels. Wow. Powerful words coming from such a young lady. She is taking to the streets and she is giving us the hard truth, which we get a chance to receive and act on. She is so inspiring and she gives us faith in the youngest generation um, and their ability to instigate change on this beautiful blue-green space flower that we call home.